we are in a series in uh, Colossians, the book of Colossians. It's really, I call it a book, it's a, it's a letter written by Paul. And he wrote this letter when he was in prison, right? And so he, he was this incredible guy that even though things were going really bad for him, his heart really was for the gospel and for the church. And he'd spend a lot of time just writing encouragement to people and to churches, so he wrote this uh, particular letter to the church in Colossae, and it was a church he hadn't been to before, as far as we can tell anyway, and, um, and, but he'd heard about them, and he'd said, I've heard that you guys, that, he probably didn't use the word guys, but he said, I heard that you were holy and faithful people, holy and faithful people. And so as we read through this book, it's good just to see, well, what is it that he's heard about them, and what are the words of encouragement that he wants to give to them? So last week we looked through the first 14 verses. There's a bunch of thoughts there about this idea of holy and faithful Christians. And one of the things that Paul said, uh, that we, it wasn't last week, sorry, it was two weeks ago, wasn't it? One of the things that uh, we read about um, was this idea of fruitfulness. And the people in the church were known for, for being f- fruitful. And so we had that question, well, what does it look like to be a, a fruitful church? The big one, of course, amongst lots of other ones we talked about, was this idea of being a people who were focused on love of God and love for others. And when you consider the circumstances they were in, it's really inspiring because they were in a time when, um, you know, Christians in the church were very much uh, persecuted and and sidelined in their culture. And yet they were very much focused on this idea of love. Just this week, uh, Stephen and uh, Pastor Stephen, Pastor Adam, and I were at this se- seminar that was put on by Alpha. And the speaker there, he reminded us that in the early church, John three sixteen wasn't the big verse that they would um, they were known known for. It wasn't the one that they were constantly reciting. It was Matthew five forty four, which says this: "I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you." That was the key verse for the time, because they had a lot of stuff coming against them. And they were about loving enemies and praying for those who persecuted them. This is the church, this is the verse that they lived on. It was their ethos, it was their culture. And I just want to remind you of something. The second part of that verse isn't a call to pray for your persecutor to receive some kind of you know, justice for what they may have done to you. It's not a call to pray even for a change of heart, although that would be okay. In that context of that verse, just look at it there, church, and get this for a second, because it says something about Jesus and about what the church should be like. It says, in the, it says to love your enemies. So in the light of that, that means our prayers for our so-called enemies or persecutors are actually prayers of blessings for them. Like, just think about that for a second. You know, when we often say pray for those who persecute us, our prayers can be very much like, yeah, God, please, um, you know, stop them from doing that, make them a more loving person or whatever. In the context of the whole verse here, I think Jesus is saying, this is the kind of love we have. You're actually praying a blessing on those who might persecute you. Like, isn't that just ridiculous? That is crazy love. And that's the kind of love that Jesus wants us to have. Do you hear what I'm saying? 
I'm not saying, you know, there's a whole sermon on this. I'm not saying that if someone um, is abusing you or whatever, that you stay in an abuse or anything like that. I'm not saying any of those sorts of things. But Jesus is saying if someone persecutes you, there's a time when you pray for them. For them. For them is the key, I think. Last week we finished at verse 14 in the first chapter of Colossians. So we're going to enter back in today, verse 15. Now, this particular section we're about to read has some of the most significant verses in the New Testament regarding the nature of Christ. So we should listen carefully. In fact, I know we often don't bring our Bibles anymore because we like to read it off the screen. But if you look in your Bibles, some of the translations will have this section indented, okay? It's not in the standard paragraph format. And usually what happens is when, when it's like that, you know that the particular author that we're either quoting something from uh, somewhere else, like the Old Testament, or it was some kind of hymn format or, or poetry or something like that. But either way, this was something that the writer was saying that we, we kind of adopt as a creed. It's something that we remember as a church. And I think what Paul was trying to say to the church here was, this bit here I'm about to tell you about Jesus, remember it, recite it, understand who Jesus is. So verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1 says this, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. Now, these verses are so important. We know that there's some other um, particular religions around the world that really see Jesus in a different light to what these verses are saying. So we should understand this. Verse 16, For through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. Through him. Through Jesus, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. That's us here today. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him God reconciled everything to him. Through Jesus, God reconciled everything to him. To himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Fundamental, foundational, important for us to understand. Then he goes on in verse 21. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies at once, separated from him by evil thoughts and actions. Yet, now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence. Isn't that amazing? He has brought us into his presence, you know, his holy presence where uh, anything that's not perfect or holy can't be and yet Christ has made that way. And you are holy, you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Because of Jesus, you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Can I get an amen? amen. 
You must, yeah, for today's sermon, verse 23, but you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it and proclaim it well he has. Now, if you're like me and you've been a follower of Jesus for any length of time, eventually you'll be in that sad place when a friend or a family member that you know who was once walked with God has drifted away. I think if I was to ask for a raise of hands today, I think everyone here today could put their hand up and say, I know somebody, and it's, it breaks my heart to see that happen. I can think of some of my closest friends from when I was a teenager. You know, we loved Jesus together. We were part of the church, um, and, and they're no longer walking with the Lord. Some who were even more certain of their faith than I was when I was a teen. And, I, and you wonder, well, how does this happen? How does this happen? You know, there was people who had zeal for Jesus that I, I lacked. Even, even a former pastor whose beliefs now, I'm, I'm, you know, they're uncertain. Now, perhaps today you're in danger of being one of those people. Life has been tough for a long time, or maybe the pressure from the world has been too much, or you're, uh, you know, you're a bit disillusioned with things, disillusioned with the church for some reason. No matter where you are at in your faith journey, Paul, the greatest apostle ever, says this to us through, down through the ages in God's word. He says, continue on, stand firm, don't drift. Continue to grow in your faith, stand firm, Firm in the truth. Don't drift from the assurance that God first put in your heart. Remember that assurance that you, you felt? That moment when you knew God was who he said he was, Jesus was who he said he was, and that he loved you know, even me? And that assurance we had, hold on to that. Here's the truth. If you're not moving forwards in your faith, you're probably moving backwards. It's like anything in life, really. A strong faith and a deep relationship with Jesus requires constant attention. It actually requires good discipline. If you make a commitment to follow Jesus and put your faith in him as your Lord, and then you do nothing else, it's almost certain you'll slowly drift backwards until one day you find yourself out of relationship with Jesus. You know, Jesus talked about the parable of the seeds. And sometimes things would be snatched away because of the worries of the world or the weeds would grow up and strangle out the new growth. The truth is that anything in life really, you have to be moving forward in if you, otherwise you'll be moving backwards. Any part of your life where you're not growing, you're probably receding. You know, if you plant a garden and you don't attend to your new garden with water and sunshine and fertilizer, the garden will slowly die. And if you want a good example of that, you come and have a look at my rose garden at home. <laughs> Honestly, this is where roses come to die. Because I don't attend to them like I should. And they just turned into sticks and they're dead. It's just a big, bare patch. And look, that's a great example of what happens in our spiritual life. It just turns into barrenness and sticks and there's not much beauty and growth and stuff like that. When it comes to holding firm in your faith 
and relationship with Jesus, if you're putting nothing in, I can guarantee you, you're drifting. And you're in danger of drifting away completely. Paul uses that word, don't drift, stand firm. Now, if we skip ahead, actually, into chapter 2 of Colossians, which we will get to in the next few weeks, he actually says something else. He says uh, at verse 7, Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth that you were taught and you will, I love it, you'll overflow with thankfulness. You know, you'll be, you'll be that beautiful rose, if I can keep using that analogy for a little bit longer. Overflow with thankfulness. The thing about overflow is that it always spills out and things around it get wet. When you put your roots down deep into Jesus, you're the sort of person that walks through life and people around you get wet. They, they actually are impacted by what's, what's flowing out of you. You know, those streams of living water that Jesus talks about in another place. My observation is that far too often we have roots that are just like millimetres deep. Millimetres deep. Do you remember that big storm that tore through the gap probably about 12 years ago or something like that? There were these huge gum trees flat on their side. And when you look at the root system of gum trees, it's often very shallow. Couldn't stand up to the storm. And that's often what can happen in our life. If we don't put down deep roots, we can blow over when the storms hit. Too often we know just the basics of our faith. We can't articulate who Jesus is like Paul just did then. You know, what is the doctrine of the Trinity? Who wrote all the various books of the Bible and, and, and why? You know, why can the Bible be trusted? Do we, do we know that? Or do we just think it's a, a book that somehow magically appeared out of nowhere because it didn't? Do we understand where it came from? Do we know how to communicate with God well, how to pray? You know, the list goes on. We put no effort into going deeper, and then we wonder why we drift. We drift away from the Lord. Now, don't worry, I'm still in some of these categories myself as I grow deeper in my own faith. So in response to Paul's exhortation to the church, where he says, stand firm, here is my suggestions for you today of how to stand firm and how not to drift. Number one is this. Study the Bible. And I know what you're thinking. That's a predictable one. In fact, some of you probably just stifled a little yawn. Ah, uh, yes, study the Bible. How often has he used that point in a sermon? <laughs> it's probably the most preached point from pastors around the world. It kind of feels boring and predictable, but there's a reason why we talk about it. You know, I somewhat can agree with you if you feel like that's a boring point, but only to a point. If you find reading the Bible boring, then this morning you had my permission to stop reading. I know. If reading the Bible each morning is for you, like eating that vegetable that you just don't like, it may be doing you more harm than good. Now, I know that's a risky thing for me to say, especially on the day of the AGM, right? Now, the thing is, if you find reading the Bible boring... I suggest you may not be reading it right. That's the point I'm trying to make. And yeah, yeah, good, yes, now it makes sense, okay. I think you may be reading it for the wrong reasons because this particular point doesn't even say to read it. It says you've got to study it because there's so much depth in that Bible that you all have for you about life 
and about God and about eternity. When we study the Bible, we don't just read a chapter and close the cover and tick a box. If you're doing that in the morning and you're getting nothing out of it, you've got to change something, okay? We need to know who actually is the author of the book that, that we're reading. You know, this morning I talked about, this, about Colossians. Paul was the author. We need to know who wrote all the different books of the Bible. Who are they writing to? Why are they writing to them? You know, what was the purpose for this book or this letter? What was going on in the culture in that place at the time is important to know. And you don't often get it just from reading the Bible by itself. You have to dig deeper and go to other sources. You know, is everything written applicable to us right now or is some of the things written there just for the readers at the time? We need to understand how to apply it all to us. How can I protect myself from taking a verse out of context? You know, we've all seen that happen. People take a verse out of context and claim it, and it doesn't even mean what they're saying that it means. We need to understand how to read the Bible, how to put that verse back into context with the paragraph around it and the chapter around it and the whole book all around it and the rest of Scripture that's all around it. We need to know what are the principles for interpreting the Bible. Learning these things can bring your reading of the Bible to a new level of understanding that takes you beyond just what we learn. If you grew up in the church in particular, if you learned some things in Sunday school, we've got to go deeper than those stories. We need to learn from those who have dedicated their lives to knowing the Bible. You know, the people who really know Greek and Hebrew very well, the ones who have studied the cultures of the time, the ones who know church history well. Now, recently, I know a handful of you did um, a subject here called Introduction to the Old Testament, and some of you actually said to me, I've known God my whole life, I've known the Bible my whole life, I've got a better understanding of what this is all about now. It actually helps my faith and my walk with the Lord to change. It goes deeper. I get the big arc of the story of the Bible now. I get some of the more difficult bits, all the different literary styles that are within the found, particularly in the Old Testament, and how we're supposed to read them and things like that. You know, a deeper understanding of how the Old Testament fits together and flows through to the New Testament and the different styles and how you should read them, the historical context of the Bible itself, all those things are important for us to know. To be honest, every Christian should do something like that, should do a subject like that. How do I understand the Old Testament and the New Testament? How do they fit together even? May I suggest that to you? you know, at the very least, if you didn't want to go and do a subject, come here on Thursday nights and stuff like that, and I get that, that that's hard to do because you're all very busy people, I recommend to you one resource that you can use at home. It's called thebibleproject.com. Who knows that one? Some of you do. You should get onto this particular resource, onto this website, because... Um, these two guys do a fantastic job of giving you an overview of every, nearly every book of the Bible and the themes of the Bible, and they do it with illustration. So it's very interactive. Before you open up you know, Leviticus and go, oh my goodness, I cannot understand this, and I understand that is a hard book of the Bible to read, why don't you watch thebibleproject.com and you'll get a better understanding of the culture and what was going on in the context at that time and how it might apply to me. Bibleproject.com. I was going to show a video this morning, but I think we've run out of time, so I'm not going to do that. To stand firm, or rather not just stand firm, to move forward, dig deep into that amazing book that you all have. 
Don't just read it and tick the box. Yeah, done my bit for today. God will be pleased with me. And then you don't even remember a word that you read. I know that that can happen because it happens to me as well. But dig deep into God's word. All right, number two is this. Explore the hard questions in life and faith. Now, if you're like me, you grew up in the church and there's a point when you have to jettison your parents' faith and you've got to explore the claims of Jesus for yourself and the Bible. And you've got to actually say, you know what, this has to be my faith. It can't just be something that I'm believing from someone else. You know, I had to come to a point in my young adult years where I had to look hard into my faith and the claims from Jesus that he was who he said he was. And I had to decide, is it true? I think we all have to do that for ourselves. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3, if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. That's a scary verse, actually. Because I think if someone's going to ask me one day a hard question, the Bible says I should be ready to explain it. Okay? And then, of course, he says, do this in a gentle and respectful way, which aligns with everything else the Bible says. So that's important as well. But always be ready to explain it. That means we should understand the fullness of the gospel and also, we should be able to talk through the difficult questions about faith and life. It doesn't mean you have to be an expert, by the way, or an apologist. I'm definitely no apologist. I'll put my hand up and say, that's not my strength. You know, I'm a preacher, I'm a leader, I'm a pastor. When it comes to apologetics, I try my best, but there's others out there that are just really good at it. And I'll put them, I'll lift them up to you and say, listen to these people. They know what they're talking about. Some people I'm going to recommend to you now, I'm going to put them up on the screen. The first one is uh, Ravi Zacharias, and I've quoted him many times here before. He's got a new book called The Logic of God. You know, when Ravi was a teenager, he was a skeptic. He was depressed. It's in his testimony. He says he was thinking about ending his life. And then he heard the words of Jesus in John 14 when Jesus said, Because I live, so too will you. And that changed his life, just that little simple scripture. He's now one of the world's most famous and respected apologists, and he's dedicated his life, and he's often on university campuses around the world, just answering hard questions that people have for him. And uh, you can Google him and find him on, uh, he's all over YouTube. He's got some, some great resources. The next one I want to lift up to you is Professor John Lennox. I love this guy. He's like this kind of roly-poly professor from Oxford uh, University, professor of mathematics there, a real humble man. He loves science and he loves God and he believes um, that those two loves of his are not exclusive. They actually work together really well. He's got a new book um, called Can Science Explain Everything? Worth, worth a read. The next one is Alistair McGrath. He's got a book called Inventing the Universe, Why, can't, why We Can't Stop Talking About Science, Faith and God. He's also a professor at Oxford. That's a great university over there. And uh, he's a professor of science and religion. He was once an atheist and he holds three doctorates and knows more about science and theology than probably all of this room combined. He's one smart cookie, this guy. And uh, he writes his, one of our textbooks we had to read, which was Introduction to Theology. And I know he's trying really hard to make it simple for those of us who need it to be simple, right? But he's really good, and I recommend him to you. Another one is Lee Strobel. You, you, a lot of you might be familiar with this book. He, he wrote a book called The Case for Christ. Again, he was an atheist. His, his wife became a Christian. He set out to try and prove to her that, that God wasn't real. 
And uh, he was the editor of the Chicago Tribune at the time. And instead, he found God through that whole quest. And so he's got a great book. In fact, I've got copies of that book here if you ever want one. You can come and see me and I'll give it to you. Another one going back in history a little bit is C.S. Lewis. He's got a really famous book called Mere Christianity. Again, he was from that Cambridge-Oxford kind of uh, location and uh, was once an atheist as well. And he had this really long, if you read his testimony, long, painful um, conversion, I guess you'd say, um, to Jesus. It was almost like a reluctant one, but he got to the point where he couldn't deny anymore that Jesus was real. And so then he went on to write some amazing, amazing literature that we still enjoy to this day, including the Chronicles of Narnia, right? He's a great guy. Last one I want to hold up to you is Francis Collins. Uh, he has a book called The Language of God. If you are a scientist here and a real thinker, he, this is a book for you. Um, he was the head of the Human Genome Project. Okay, again, a person who didn't believe in God until one day, his testimony is really incredible. One day, he was doing some research for one of his uh, PhDs and he asked a patient, he was interviewing um, some questions and she replied to him and said, um, well, doctor, what do you believe? And he couldn't articulate it very well. And so he went on a quest to find out and he encountered God as well. And so that... I haven't read that book. I'm just guessing. It would probably take a certain type of person to read it. Um, but if that's, if that's you, then I recommend it to you. The interesting thing is that almost all of these apologists, a lot of them were atheists. They weren't believers in God. They all wrestled with the big questions of life and God and they all came to the conclusion, these ones anyway, and eventually, that God was real, and eventually experienced God for themselves. My point, though, is that if Paul asks us to stand firm in our faith, we need to have a greater understanding of the hard questions in life, lest one day we are overwhelmed and we can't respond with these questions that we might have ourselves. As I said, I haven't actually read all of those books, but all of those authors I do recommend to you because I've read things of them in the past some of their other books or watch their podcasts or, or some of them even do um, some great debates with people like uh, Dawkins and others and they're very, it's fascinating um, to watch. And so I recommend all of those people to you. Peter Hitchens is another one who's, a, who's good to read. Part of explaining our hope as believers is having a deep understanding about our faith and also how God works in the world. There's people out there that can help us to do that. Number three is this, is love the church like Jesus did. If you want to stand firm in your faith, you have to love the church like Jesus did. In my experience, the fire I have for Jesus is in general about the same level as what's around me, okay? The zeal I have for God tends to be um, matched with the Christians around me, the church around me. When I'm strongest in my faith, I can almost always point to my brothers and sisters in Christ who are going deeper with me at the same time. Being part of a healthy, growing and faith-filled, spirit-filled church is essential to standing firm. In fact, I would go as far as saying without the church, our chance of standing firm, let alone growing, is slim to nil. How's little Daniel going this morning, by the way? Did you know we have a new baby here this morning? Joseph, Joseph Daniel. <laughs> Sorry, got it around the wrong way. 
Why don't we congratulate Scott and Jade for every little baby? I got the names mixed up because I have two nephews, their names are Joseph and Daniel, okay? And so it's all interchangeable for me. Being part of a healthy, growing, and faith-filled, spirit-filled church is essential to standing firm. You know, if the church isn't like that that you're in, it's hard work. In fact, I would go as far as saying without the church, our chance of standing firm, let alone growing, is slim to nil. Without the church, it's slim to nil. If you drop away from the church, or alternately, if you spend much of your life you know, uh, undermining the church, if you're one of those people that kind of likes to always be judging the church, not loving the church like Jesus did, you put yourself at serious risk of drifting. Now, I've always been a big defender of the church because Jesus talks about the church like, like we're his bride. That's how much he loves the church. So if someone attacks the bride, sometimes I get a little fired up because... Jesus died for the church. The church is of immense value to Jesus, and so it's going to be of value to us. It's of value to me. This here today that you're sitting in here was his idea. You know, we're here today because of Jesus. So, you know, love it. (laughs) Love it. We need each other, and I need you. You need to encourage me, to inspire me, to pray for me, to lift me up when I'm down to bring me back when I stray, to spur me on to go deeper in my faith. I need you, and hopefully you need me, and we all need each other. And I want to encourage you to be positive about the church. I know the church has weaknesses and failures, and we have to deal with those things. Absolutely, we do. But be positive about the church. Quite frankly, the church has enough outside pressure to face without having to face any inward pressure as well. I love all kinds of churches, from the small home churches with 12 people to the big mega churches with 5,000 people and everything in between. You know, my um, college teacher, I was doing class on Monday online, and she said to me, what's your opinion on this particular thing, Nathan, you know, as the mega church pastor? And I'm a mega church pastor, what are you talking about? You know, there's maybe 200 people. She said, well, my home church has 12, so as far as I'm concerned, you know, you're a... A mega church. Okay, fine. I love the churches that focus on the vulnerable people in their neighborhood. I love the churches that write music for the world to sing. I love the churches that follow you know, a strong liturgical form. I love the Pentecostal church and the evangelical church and the conservative church and the missional church, the ones out there on the edge trying to reach new groups of people. I've learned to love the Catholic church You know, you say, oh, what about all their faults? We've got faults. But they love Jesus. You know, uh, again, Stephen Adam and I were at the Alpha training this week and they said 17% of the Catholic parishes in Australia are now running Alpha, which is amazing. And it's revitalizing those parishes. It's just doing a great job there. If we all loved the church like Jesus and his disciples did, the church would be so much more powerful and it would flourish so much more. The church would be more effective. People would have the support and and the growth track they need to stand firm and to set their roots deeper.
Number four is this. Understand the culture, but don't compromise with the culture. I mention this because in times when Christians in the church are really uh, being sidelined, I guess you'd say, by our culture more and more, the answer is not to withdraw. The answer is not to put up big walls and defences. The answer is not to put our heads in the sand and remember the good old days. The answer is not to retaliate and fight with, with fists up like this, okay? The answer is to continue to embrace all people while taking the time to understand our culture so that we can respond better with salt and light, not with dark and whatever the opposite to salt is, oregano or something, I don't know. <laughs> Understanding the culture doesn't mean being influenced by the culture, okay? Just hear that bit. Understanding the culture doesn't mean being influenced by the culture. As tempting as it may be at times for the church to be affirmed by the world and to receive those plaudits, you know, that is very tempting. If we just conform to this, we're going to get good press, the world's going to love us, how good will that be? But I can promise you there'll be another thing that they're not happy with and then there'll be another thing that the culture's not happy with and there's another thing that the culture's not happy with and we keep conforming until we get to the point where we're not the church anymore. It never ends. It would never be enough. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said to that church there, be on guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. And notice how this is always tacked on to the end and do everything with love. Every time there's a call to do something, to stand, but do everything with love. But do everything with love. Standing firm in our faith with love is what it's all about. Remember two weeks ago, I was talking about 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul says, if you can't do it with love, you're a noisy young. In fact, he says, you're nothing. Yikes. You might ask, how do I understand the culture? You know, I'm still thinking about how things were back in the 90s, perhaps. There's some great thinkers out there who know culture in history. In fact, there's a really good podcast I'm going to recommend to you today since I've been recommending people. I'll keep going with that. There's one called This Cultural Moment by Mark Sayers. He's an Australian pastor in Melbourne from Red Church, and he does this great podcast with an American pastor. called His name's John Mark Comer from a church in Portland, and they're very much got churches in um, cultures that are, have changed um, dramatically over the last 20 years. And they're, and they're really they're trying to understand this cultural moment that we're in and how the church responds to that. I highly recommend it to you. In fact, I recommended it to Rachel, and she was like, okay, whatever, Dad, another recommendation from you. And we listened to one on the way to young adults camp And she's now listened to all of them. And she said to me, they are brilliant. They are amazing. I recommend this guy to you. There's also a great blogger, a pastor in Western Australia by the name of Stephen McAlpine. Any books by Alan Hirsch are really good as well when we talk about these sorts of things. My point today is this. To stand firm, you need to understand this cultural moment that we're in. But we don't compromise. We understand but we don't compromise. Because when you compromise, you begin to drift. Here's the last one for today, and it's the same point that I finished on two weeks ago, and it's this. If you want to stand firm in your faith, if you don't want to drift, you must abide in the vine. You must abide in the vine. And maybe this will be my last point 
for everyone in this series, okay? Until it starts to sink in. I'm talking about John 15, when Jesus himself said, abide in me. He is the vine and we are the branches. That is the picture that he gave us of branches that are attached to the, uh, attacked, attached to the vine. They're attached to the vine and it's all about that attachment. Because when you abide in, in, the, in the vine, you will produce much fruit. That's what he said. We'll be healthy. We'll be strong. All the nutrients and the power flows through from the vine into the branches. And so my question to you today is, what are you doing to abide? How are you abiding in the vine? What's that look like for you? Because if you're struggling to abide, then as the branch, we start to look a little dead. We're not standing firm anymore. We can start to drift. Abide in him. Abide in him. Abide in him. If that's the only thing you take away from today, is abide in the vine. If that's not how your life looks right now, it's time to make a change. Following Jesus is the most important thing you do in your life. You must put effort into it. In the same way that if you want to have a good marriage, you put effort into that relationship. If you want to have a good relationship with your kids, you put effort into that relationship. And when you don't, if you don't, you know you start to drift. You start to drift away. Everything takes effort from us. It takes an investment from us if you want to have that return. So this morning as we close, I just want to invite you to close your eyes for a moment. Here's the thing, church. Jesus has done everything he can for you. He's given himself for that relationship to be real. Remember what Paul said. We are in his presence now because of Jesus and what he did for us, for every person here. He died even for me. He died for you. And you can be in relationship with him, just like Amy said this morning in her testimony. We are in his presence now. He must really love you if he died. He must really love you if he died for you. And so, Lord, now we, um, we just listen to your words where you said, you are the vine, we are the branches. And, they, and you said, we must remain in you. We must remain in you. And Paul says, don't, don't drift, stand firm, Lord Jesus. And I'm praying this morning that you would help us with that. We want to submit ourselves to you afresh today. We just want to have open hands before you and say, Lord, we want to abide right now in your presence. And we ask you to search us, you know, see if there be any wicked way in us, Lord, and, and just and deal with it. Forgive us if we need to be forgiven, Lord. Change us where we need to be changed. Lord, it's in that relationship with you that peace can be found, that we can be free, where there can be real joy and hope for eternity. And I want to pray, Lord, 
Um, you know, if we're, not, if we're not in that place now, uh, if we're not feeling like we're close to you, God, we just bring to you just a little tiny mustard seed piece of faith that we have and, and, um, and ask you to receive it and to grow that into something more powerful and strong. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning, they know they're drifting, that they're, they're not standing firm, there's things coming at them in life, whether it's trouble or temptation or whatever it is, God, I'll pray this morning as we sit here that you just help us to push that back. In fact, we pray against it in Jesus' name and we ask God that you deliver us from those things and restore us and help us to be set apart for you. In fact, Paul's words were holy and faithful people And I pray, Lord, for a church filled with holy and faithful people. Holy and faithful in our homes, holy and faithful in our workplaces, in our universities, in our schools, when we're we're at shopping, whatever it is, God. Holy and faithful people. It doesn't begin and end on Sundays. We're just here, Lord, to, um, to worship you and receive from you afresh so that we can go out into the world and be holy and faithful people. Help us to be that salt and light, to shine brightly, to do everything with love, love for you and love for others. Lord, if there's a blockage this morning, something that's just holding us back, uh, I pray that um, we don't leave here with that not being dealt with, that we, you help us to overcome in the name of Jesus. Jesus.